This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network podcast on Russia and Eurasian Studies, and I'm speaking today with Pavel Khazanov, Assistant Professor of Russian at Rutgers University, where he teaches courses on Russian literature and history. Today, we are discussing um, Pavel's new book, The Russia That We Have Lost, Pre-Soviet Past as Anti-Soviet Discourse, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Um, and uh, something of note, noteworthy uh, interest to me. So thank you for sharing that, uh, Pavel. I would like to just ask, uh, what were the things that um, brought you to publish this book at this time? What what interest you know led you to publish this book here? Sure, I would say that in general, the origin of this book is in this 1990s moment that I remember very well as a kid. Uh, I moved from from Russia in 1997. and this memory of that moment that I have going back to my childhood of this massive and um, extremely well-funded um, valorization of pre of the pre-Soviet past that suddenly appeared everywhere in the public sphere at that time. So, for example, like the biggest project around that I still remember TV commercials for because they were fundraising for it was this construction of this Cathedral of Christ the Savior which is this absolutely enormous uh, church in the middle of, of Moscow that had been knocked down in, in the 1930s um, on Stalin's orders. Um, although it wasn't actually particularly old to begin with because it was only completed in the 1880s and, and most uh, Moscow-based intelligentsia figures of imperial era despised it and thought it was horrible and really ugly um, and just generally represented everything that was wrong with the Russian state. Um, so it wasn't particularly surprising that it was knocked down. But in any case, it was then reconstructed in the 1990s to great fanfare and absolutely enormous budgets and extremely fast um, in a state that was otherwise in complete disarray and falling apart. You know, like this this is like a really horrible, horrible era for most people who live through it. Um, uh, but nevertheless, there were these massive celebrations of, of this, of these, of these returns of of pre-Soviet imperial Russian heritage, and and there was a certain sense, I think, for a lot of people at the time, and a lot of people since, and the people that I've talked to, people certainly of my parents' generation, that that return was somehow a foregone conclusion, that that return was somehow like a self-evident move, a self-evident move of a post-Soviet state. Like, of course you would, right? Like the Soviet 
shit state was bad. We need to find the roots of something that was good. Therefore, pre-Soviet must have been better. Therefore, we're going to valorize the pre-Soviet. So, right, like, if you're looking for, like, this kind of, where, what, are, what else are you going to do? Like, what are you just going to, you're not going to sit around and start building, like, German post-war Bauhaus here, you know? Um, which is, incidentally, what the Soviet state actually did. So, um, so there was that general sense that, uh, that, that, uh, that we're somehow returning from this, this aberration of um, Soviet history to the original path, had, which had been stunted by the um, by Soviet power in 1917, that somehow we can replay that original churn in one way or another, find these kind of sources, these connections, and play this game of inheritance. Um, and I might add that this game of inheritance was not only played like on an entirely symbolic level. Like there was like the Soviet, sorry, the post-Soviet, Russian government like literally you know brought lawsuits like in France and Spain like reclaiming imperial property as the successor of the Russian empire this is not like uh so this is not merely symbolic there was actual literal literal reclamations that were happening um on a legal level um so um so my question is, well, why was it a foregone conclusion? Why did it seem so self-evident that this would legitimate everything? Um, that this would that this would somehow be helpful? What what kind of cultural schemas did that whole process of legitimation through this valorization of the pre-Soviet past? What were these um, cultural ideas tapping into? Right? What what were the um, what was the full range of ideas that these returns of the pre-Soviet past were actually legitimating, supporting, and et cetera? Um, and, and I think that the key term in that sense of legitimation for me was this idea of return to normalcy, whatever it is that normalcy is or normativity might be for Russia and who gets to speak about it um, and where they got their, their ideas of what the norm is. Um, and, and once I started doing research on this question, first of all, I realized fairly quickly that the original discussions about the reconstruction of the cathedral crisis saver had already come up in the early 1960s, as surprising as that might be, um, among Soviet conservative, uh, cultural figures like, uh, Ilya Gozunov, who figures in the, I believe the fourth chapter in this, in this book, um, no, the second chapter. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, it's it's been a while. Yes, the second the second chapter. Um, but not only that, the general kind of argument of a return to normalcy was an argument that the the whole post uh, Stalin Soviet uh, like cultural establishment was in one way or another negotiating, beginning with like 1956, really. Um, that sense that the original aberration, right, even according to Soviet power itself, had been Stalinism, right? This is the this is the claim that the state made after Stalin died, that Stalin was had been a sort of a uh, this this cult of personality. He had introduced this aberrance to um, to the original pure uh, Bolshevik theory and practice, and that therefore we now must return to something that preceded it, right? So obviously the state at the time said, well, we have to return to our pure Leninist roots. Um, and the uh, post-Stalin intellectuals were quite skeptical uh, about that claim of return, or if not skeptical outright, then certainly skeptical 
enough to also suggest returns to other forms of normalcy of pre-Soviet, uh, what they understood as pre-Soviet kind of cultural models of normalcy. Um, and once that discussion came up, I think that the main effect of it that interests me was the return of the idea of who exactly it is here that is the elite. Um, how how these how this elite, this cultural elite should refer to itself, how it should think of itself, what name should it give itself, and vis-a-vis -vis whom does that name and does that kind of collective um act and and struggle against or collaborate with and etc. Um, and here, I think a very telling decision, and a decision that didn't seem like a decision, it really just seemed self-evident, that was made in the moment was they called themselves the intelligentsia. Um, and this is a very normal uh, kind of word to take up in, in the Russian cultural context. Of course, you would call that. Like, that's what all of the Russian um, uh, cultural elites have referred to themselves as since since like the mid nineteenth century. So so how, how else how else should you do it? Um, so there was a kind of a self evidence to this fact, but it was a very uh, um, it was a very fraught proposition to actually do that in a way that not that almost no one in the moment really fully reckoned with, which is that with the return of an of of this of this term of describing oneself as a kind of heirs of the imperial intelligentsia, this return of a kind of a normative ideas about what an intelligentsia is, that it implied a return to a social imaginary, right? An imaginary that sort of how you imagine those around you, how you imagine your, your political community, how you imagine where you are in the pecking order vis-a-vis um, -vis everyone else. But that imaginary had been formulated originally in the in the 19th century under very different social conditions, um, and in a sense, the book makes an argument about what happens when you take up this kind of retrofitted imaginary without really reckoning with what has changed between its origin point and its uh, and its new iteration, beginning from the 1950s, and what had really changed was this rise of uh, of essentially a modern, educated, urbanized mass uh, polity that had been created by Soviet power willy-nilly over the course of its 40 years of modernization. Um, and so what does it mean then that you're referring to yourself as an intelligentsia or, or you're invested in these ideas of the classical intelligentsia and the return to intelligentsia values? What does it mean then when suddenly your audience in the context of that conversation now numbers in the millions or in the tens of millions, thanks to TV and film and you know mass print um, and the party which had you know carried out this mass literacy and education campaign that made sure that everybody went and read all of the classics willy-nilly, not particularly well, but they did, you know. So what does it mean now when you are now when you now have the kind of audience that that the you know imperial intelligentsia had never could never even have imagined for itself right like in the situation where like less than ten percent of the Russian Empire had even been literate never mind like you know never mind paying attention to them right so um, what happens then to kind of all of these uh, 
fundamentally elitist kind of claims that that a lot of intelligentsia discourse has always been ready to use about itself, about about what culture is, about those who possess culture, those who make culture. How can you continue making those kinds of claims when your audience for those claims is no longer uh, people you would consider your peers um, as you know fellow cultural elites, but the mass readers, the mass viewers, the mass, uh, the modernized mass public that you might refer to kind of for shorthand as a as a modern middle class, um, even though that's also a very complicated term to use in the Soviet context. Um, so that's kind of where I see the project originating and then proceeding from that point to then think about, okay, so if you are bringing back this intelligentsia social imaginary, and if that's at the core of what you're bringing back when you're talking about returning to normal after Soviet power or after Stalinism, right? if that's what's at the core, well, of course it's after Stalinism, but then, you know, shortly thereafter, after Soviet power, right? So if that's what's at the core, and if there is this fundamental mismatch between the between the point of return and um meaning this this uh this 19th century cultural system that is no longer that no longer holds true for Russia at all. Um and if there's a mismatch between that and the reality in which um these intellectuals are acting in a in a mass polity that can hear them and that can identify with them and that starts to think of themselves potentially as a junior intelligentsia as a kind of a junior uh elite in a sense um this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, uh, so the, the book um, tracks this discourse through cultural history and is quite rich in specific examples, starting with Pushkin all the way through modern day. I'm, you know, from film to novels to uh, plays to thought leaders, um, there are so many uh, examples um, that you use to track this discourse. Did you have um, specific biases or specific interests or specific criterion by which you chose um, these examples from cultural history? How was that? Yeah. For um, that was, that's always the kind of the, the big, the big question of where do you, when do you stop reading? When do you stop viewing? When do you, what do you cut off? And some things did get cut off, actually. There were, there was a, I, I had an entire fairly large section on, on the films of Eldar Rezanov, for example, that did not end up in this book, um, even though they could have. Um, I think that the motivation had been provided by a certain kind of dialectical kind of theoretical structure that took shape uh, when I wrote the introduction um, and that um, essentially re-laid uh, out the general um, 
the general sense of 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 the book from where it had originally started to the draft that is actually published. Um, so uh, so the first draft was actually a dissertation, um, and that first draft kind of proceeded from these kind of this normative dialectics as how how far how far, how we actually understand. Soviet culture to be, which is like, this is the conflict between liberals and conservatives, right? This is a very typical story that we often tell about the late Soviet intelligentsia. It's a story that the intelligentsia itself tells about itself, right? It tells the story that there were these like nativists and liberals, right? That 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 essentially fought it out on, on you know, in, in various cultural venues and journals and, and in films and on television. Um, and in academia, and they essentially fought these battles. Sometimes they got quite pitched, like in the 1960s. And both sides always claimed that the state was on the other side, uh, which is sort of hilarious. Um, but uh, but um, although I do think that on, on par, the state was more pro-conservative than pro-liberal, but it's not to say that the conservatives always felt like that they were getting everything that they wanted. Um, and so... Um, so that that kind of like normative framework was a framework that originally guided my selection of like okay well let's pick let's pick as many things as essentially as I can find that valorize the pre-Soviet past on the liberal side versus the valorize the pre-Soviet past on the conservative side. Um, that was the original motivation. And then when I laid out all those things, I started noticing the ways in which uh, there's a symbiosis between them. And the ways in which they're not arguing with each other, but actually completing each other's argument. The ways in which it's usually the liberals who start the argument um, on essentially culturally conservative grounds because they're anti-Soviet grounds, because they're anti-socialist grounds. And then the conservatives essentially then come up to them and say like, okay, yeah, well, so let me take you where you don't want to go and let me finish your thought for you. Um, and, and that then became this motivating structure for the book where chapter one is this appearance of this, uh, like that I write out, this kind of clarity, if, if it's possible to articulate like the clarified discourse of the return to normalcy of the post-Stalin liberal intelligent, right? Chapter one essentially lays that out through um, these figures that are, just extremely prominent in, in Russian liberal cultural history. Figures like Akhmatova, like 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 Lotman, Edelman. Um, well, Edelman is actually not so much Shetron, but Lotman certainly. Um, and, or Grigory Pemirans, whom whom I I I like very much as as a as a late Soviet thinker. Let's start. Let's start out from from that position of trying to articulate what that clarified discursive logic is on their side in terms of who they are and who the subject of history is, as far as they're concerned. And that subject is this liberal intelligentsia subject. And then chapter two is this conservative response of saying like, "Aha! Well, let me show you all of the things that your new liberal intelligentsia subject has done for us." And what it has done for us is, A, it has divorced the intelligentsia from socialism. It is essentially making the argument that whatever is happening at the level of the socialist state is, in fact, abnormal. Um, and, uh, and what that means then, um, and the other thing that it's done is, it's, um, is it is now valorizing certain modes of being refined culturally refined as opposed to your 
um, necessarily uh, political commitments to, let's say, a kind of a broadly social democratic slate, which certainly, you know, a general commitment to some version of social democracy was absolutely the the overwhelmingly dominant trend among um, among the imperial cultural elites, right, and especially in the last in the last. 20 years of imperial power. But all of this kind of uh, recycling of the intelligentsia ethos now is essentially cutting a lot of that stuff away because it's saying that, well, that's the stuff that actually brought about Soviet power and brought about Bolshevism. So there's a great deal of skepticism with it. Um, if not outright denial, I don't think that they would necessarily outright deny that heritage, but certainly um, the liberal intelligentsia figures were often quite skeptical of it. And the conservatives essentially coming in are like, okay, well, let me finish that thought about your skepticism and let me just say, from the start that actually like cultural refinement, yes, ideas of social liberation, they were always bad. You should have stopped. You should never, you should have never had them in the first place. Right. And this is something you can see really prominently in a figure like, like Solzhenitsyn uh, writing in the 1960s and seventies. And this is really, uh, I think when Solzhenitsyn moved to the United States and the American public finally discovered Solzhenitsyn's full platform for post-Soviet Russia, um, there was a lot of skepticism and sudden realization of that this guy is far more right-wing than, than uh, American intellectuals who were willing to hear um, originally. But it wasn't a particular surprise for anybody else coming out of the, coming out of the Russian, Russian uh, uh, intelligentsia milieu. Um, so the conservatives essentially pushed the argument, and um, but not only that, they also start looking, they also start making um, certain additions to the liberal intelligentsia argument that uh, might then become useful for power. Uh, for, in, that, in, in their case, late Soviet power, who's coming, who, who, whom they are courting as, their, uh, as, as a patron uh, uh, from whom they want support. Um, and later the rise of post-Soviet power. So, um, so that logic then of like the liberals starting the thought and the conservatives finishing it um, is the logic that drives the first four chapters. So chapter one and two are these, uh, are these essentially uh, kind of mirror, mirror images in that sense. And then chapter, um, chapters three and four, are essentially both chapters about how that general um, theory of what the intelligentsia is, how it then filters down through Soviet socialist mass culture institutions and then creates mass culture, creates those films watched by millions, those books read by millions, um, creates, uh, creates these, uh, these really prominent uh, Soviet cultural artifacts that you can you can pull over just about anyone on, on on the street in Russia today, and you can say like, have you seen the Mikhailov film? And they'll of course say yes. Like it's nearly unthinkable that they wouldn't. Well, maybe the very young generation might not, but certainly any generation of 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 my generation and certainly my parents' generation would have been unthinkable that they wouldn't have seen these things. Um, so ch chapter two is much more motivated. Chapters three and four are much more motivated by that level of selection of like, well, what are these? massive mainstream cultural products that are the result of this theory and this theory's meeting with Soviet cultural institutions. Um, and finally, chapter five is this is the chapter of this post-Soviet synthesis, the synthesis of, of, of 
both conservative and liberal vectors in the creation of uh, of post-Soviet um, authoritarianism, whose basic claim to power has always been a kind of um, a kind of omnivorousness, where it can basically turn to various groups, various interest groups in the country, and can go to both of them and say, like, see, you're getting what you want, right? Like, it can go to the liberals and say like see i'm not shutting down your theaters well that was true certainly before the war started uh see you can you can fundraise you can have your plays you can have your stuff you can have all of your all of your newspapers and your freedom of speech isn't that what you wanted like you can totally have it right you can have uh you want it you want it to be able to have a, a capitalist culture system where you can make lots of money if you're prominent writers and and and, and filmmakers and you can have it there it is right um, and it can also turn to the conservatives and can offer them the same kinds of perks um, and can also say like, well, look, but I'm carrying out all the things that you guys like, which is this kind of, you know, politics of of national sovereignty, right, of this kind of like celebration of like uh, of uh, Russian ethno-national primacy and in, in our and in, in our triumph in the conflict against the West. It can sort of go to both sides and can can give both sides some of what they want to some of what they want to hear and can do so much more convincingly um um much better than late soviet power could mm -hmm. so it, in that sense um it has this discourse has uh, proven to continue from the late soviet period through the post-soviet period up un until today really yes uh, and the examples that you use throughout the chapters of the book uh, prove that. Um, perhaps, you know, you'd be uh, willing to share with us um, how the, the imperial cultural heritage looks today and what direction that might be going in. Um, well, today it's obviously bristling with our ruins and waging, waging uh, an, in, an incredibly destructive aggressive war against the neighboring state um, and the actual rhetoric of that war um, can be copied almost verbatim from something that a young Vasily Shulgin would have been writing in the 1905 or so. Um, so, 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 and this is the same Vasily Shulgin who's in my chapter, chapters uh, two and four, who who's, lives into a ripe old age and ends up being as kind of a, an informal advisor and sort of conservative guru in in, in late Soviet culture. Um, so, so the 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 linkage between the kind of rhetoric um, of of. Uh, about about the Russian Empire and what uh, the Russian state is currently carrying out is pretty clear. Um, I think that there is a difference, possibly a kind of a cautious difference, is I don't think that the current articulations of the Russian state and its kind of valorization of the pre-Soviet past are as convincing to the liberal uh, opposition side um, as they had been before, not only before the war, but I think even before uh, 2012, really that first, that first big challenge to Putinism and in many ways kind of the origin of the contemporary, of contemporary Putinism, I think that we can sort of 
pretty readily say that before 2012 it was kind of early Putinism and after 2012 is late Putinism, although God knows how long the late Putinism is going to last. Um, so I don't think that the I don't think that the, the 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 state's approach to the liberals is as convincing anymore, um, and I don't think that the general um, deployment of intelligentsia discourse is is as successful anymore. Um, I don't think it calls forth as many people who want to hear it, who want to identify themselves in that way. Um, but but. I do think that at the level of the basic structure of Putinist institutions, most of the people um, who were there before 2012 haven't really disappeared, right? And most of the people who were called forth by that logic that I described back then are still in power. Um, or near power, these people like Kudrin, right, who who appears at the end of uh, at the end of chapter five, right, as one of the people who supports the construction of that monument to Stalipin, right, in Moscow, um, and and is like, and all, all these like figures that are part of the Stalipin Club, which is this kind of uh, this kind of economic think tank, for example, right, uh, that that takes on very tellingly this name of this late imperial era. Prime Minister as its kind of totem. So so I guess I would say that at the at the at the individual and institutional level, I would say that the state is that the state is still in that paradigm of those same people um, at the level of how this discourse connects to the outside of the the regime and in its institutions, I think that that relationship is 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 different. I don't think that that relationship is is as um, is as strong at all. Um, so I, I'm not one of these people who believes that the like the Putin state is like somehow like uh, like remains popular um, uh, or or remains popular among among uh the among the middle class or something or or the or the the elite like i think that that was true for putinism uh for quite some time but i don't think that it has been true since the war started um so but i would still say it is not to say that fantasies about the glorious pre-soviet era have been dispelled like it is not to say that today uh, your average educated uh, urbanized Russian walking past, um, let's say, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, or maybe better, something like something less polarizing, like the Iberian Gate, for example, in Moscow. Like, I don't think that the average person walking past that construction uh, is thinking to themselves, like, hey, that was a bad idea. Right, like, or hey, uh, the return of these of these pre-Soviet symbols was a bad idea, or something, um, uh, or the return of like the double, you know, the double-headed eagle, or something, or all of these kind of symbols of imperial state power. Like, like I don't think that they've been entirely discredited. Um, although I would say that, like, I think it is telling that that one of the major symbols of protest against against the war and against Putin that rose that arose in the first months of the war was the white, blue, white flag, the flag of Russia without blood. This is kind of it started sort of 
I think on the internet um, and then appeared in protests and then was, you know, subsequently banned and heavily uh, policed. Um, but I think that even in that that turn of of a re of redoing the flag, for example, in the in the public sphere, I think that that also indicates a kind of uh, distaste uh, with uh, reclaiming the past. Uh, and I think I think the war especially has made it very clear to uh, Russian liberals that um, that there is not necessarily. A past worth salvaging, or or if there is a past worth salvaging, then you have to go about much more carefully about it. In a way, actually, I think that the past that is potentially being revalorized right now is the 1990s, and I actually think that the that the next kind of the next turn in the post-Putin epoch is going to be a new uh, relitigation of the 1990s and 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 what that moment had really offered. So. It'd be curious to see if there was going to be like a return of 1990s architecture. That's going to be great. So, <laughs> well, this, the discourse certainly continues. Yeah. Right. And the cultural production continues as, yeah. as time goes on. So, yeah. this is a quite a fascinating, fascinating subject. And uh, I'm grateful to have learned so much from your book. Thank you.